All right, this morning we uh, continue our discussion on Law and Gospel. This is part 25. Part 25. We have a lot to do, so... All right, I'm not going to review the first two theses, but we are currently working on number three. So if you have them written down, you can look. If not, I'll give you the thesis number three. Everybody ready? This is number three, rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. Now, the the way the thesis was originally written, we've changed and we have really emphasized, especially starting on Wednesday, this concept. So I'm going to read that all again and then add the, the concept that may not be written down the first time that we changed this. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. Thesis number three, the proper distinction between law and gospel. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular, and it is taught where? Does anyone remember? And the school of experience, and the school of experience. And why does it require the school of experience to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel? Why is that required? Why is the school of experience required here? Whoever can get it right gets $1,000. Okay. <laughs> She's going to throw something out. She's like, I'm going to throw out answers. Okay. Okay, right. All right, so th- think about it this way. A lot of Christianity, a lot of it, is theoretical in this sense. So we learn lots of concepts and ideas and theological principles, and we may even get a system of morality, but it's all over here. It's just, it's just knowledge. It's just information, right? You, uh, I could, we could do a review, and you may get all the questions right. You may answer it all right. That's wonderful. That's great. That's theoretical. That's just, that's just understanding. Okay, and like if I was to ask you, what is the definition of law? Everyone will say... Works, or basically, what's the way we've stated it throughout the whole series? Do this. Do this to be saved. Do this to live, right? That's law. And gospel? Christ. That's all. That's beautiful, right? Everybody knows those concepts. But that's theoretical, right? Now, to take those two concepts and how they work, to really understand them and learn them, is it requires the school of experience because here's what I know about everyone in this room and anyone listening online is that we all do what on a regular and consistent basis? We sin, right? That's the reality of the Christian life. We all fall short. We sin, we sin, we sin, we sin. So the, the Bible and Christianity has all of these concepts, but when we get into everyday life, we realize we fall short of the concepts and we sin. So now we have to know how to bring these concepts together and how they work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when we're not sitting in church. A lot of the principles of Christianity sound good where? Sitting in the pew. The problem is, how do you get those principles from the pew to where? Life. How do you figure out how to get them in life? The school of experience. That's where you have to struggle and you have to figure it out. And sometimes what is preached does not translate to what is lived because there's a disconnect in how to make it work. So the concepts of law and gospel, it doesn't matter how great you know the concepts. It's how they are demonstrated and how they show up in your life. And that's where the problems are and that's where the problems begin. Everybody remember most of that, or at least some of that? And Thesis 3 has really been doing what? They've given us scriptures. They gave us Psalm 51, correct? And we worked on that and came up with some interesting concepts. They gave us Luke 5.8, which we did what with? We called it into question the way the book used it, because we don't think it actually uh, translates the way it, it, it sh- the way it should into, into real life. Then we looked at, on Wednesday, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Everybody got that? Okay. Then today, they're going to give us how many scriptures here? One, two, three, three scriptures. All right? And we're going to work on them and see what they want us to do. I'm not going to go back and review everything in this chapter, but let's start in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. When you get there, let me know. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I know there's some textual issues here and translation issues. We won't be able to get into all of them. Well, I'll read it from multiple translations. 2 Timothy chapter 2. All right. And we have verse 15. All right. How many here have the King James? All right. So I know what you're going to read there, right? It starts off with what words? Study. Study. Okay, good. So everybody see that? All right. And other translations... I can find it. It starts off this way. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Well, the idea, since it's, so the way this is kind of argued, since the concept here is that this deals with teaching the word of God, well, the be diligent there has to refer to what? Being diligent in God's word, which is another word for study. Okay, so just so that we can get in there and try to figure all of that out. All right, but look at 2 Timothy 2.15 again. Look at it carefully. 2 Timothy 2.15. Just read it. Read it two or three times. All right. If you were to place it in a category of law or gospel, where would this fit? This is an easy one, everyone. Okay. Law, right? Why is it law? Telling you what to do. Telling you what to do. And what are we supposed to do here? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay? Now, how could that law, and this is a very important question, how could this law get mixed with gospel and end up destroying gospel? The book doesn't go into this, but I like to play these little games. All right? So you got, you got a verse. Does everyone agree it's law? Anybody think it's gospel? Okay, everybody should say it's law because it's telling you to do something. So everyone understands that concept, right? All right, so it's a simple concept. It's law. Now, how can that get mixed with gospel and end up destroying the gospel? There you go. Okay, good. Y'all are getting this down now. Y'all are becoming experts. See, I'm done. I'm going to go. Someone else can finish the rest of the book. All right, here we go. That's, I, did everyone hear that? I stand here and I'm like, okay, the Bible tells you to study to show yourself approved. Are you a student of God's word? Are you studying God's word? And if you say, well, not that much, then I say, there's a high probability that you're what? Lost or not a Christian. So then what did I just do? Merge the two together, and what gets messed up? Gospel. Because now my salvation is not based on what Christ did. What is it based on? What I'm doing or don't do. All right? And you see the problem here. Now, as soon as I say that, someone gets nervous and saying, so you're telling me someone can be saved and never study? Well, are you telling me the way to be saved is to study? And they'll say, well, no, I'm not saying the way to be saved is study, but I'm saying if you are saved, you will study. And then I could ask what question? What question could I then turn around and ask you? There, say it. How much? How often? How long? How in depth? Right? Because I could sit there and take the amount I study compared to the amount you study, and therefore I could still question your salvation. But there's probably someone else who studies more than me who could call into question my salvation. Who gets to be the determinant factor of that? And what's the ultimate answer? We become the ones who determine it, Right? Isn't that weird how that works? Those who always want to give the test to everyone, they get to determine who's saved and not saved. Salvation is not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did. Should we study? Yes. But we can't say our salvation is based on that. Now, I'm not saying that's how they're using it in the book. I just, as soon as I saw that verse, I'm like, ah, this this is interesting. Let's see what they have to say about it. They don't say much. This is like, one sentence, and they move right, right on. But this is what they, they say. 2 Timothy 2.15, the apostle's admonition to Timothy to do his best or to study or to be diligent indicates that dividing the law and gospel properly is a great difficult art. Now, I think what they mean here is that anyone can read that and probably just preach a straight law-based message, mix it with gospel, and then you conflate the two. And we cannot do, we have to avoid that. We have to avoid in mixing that together. And let's be honest, we've all said in sermons where that has occurred, yes? 
Okay, I can, I can go probably find about 50 sermons online right now on 2 Timothy 2.15, and probably at some point, your salvation is going to be based on how much you study. And that's, that's a problem, all right? Next passage, Luke chapter 12. That's all they have to say about 2 Timothy 2.15. They just want to show you how it can be difficult to divide law and gospel. Now, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I'm interested in what they're going to do here. Luke chapter 12. All right. Luke chapter 12. They want us to start in verse 42. Luke chapter 12, verse, we're going to go to verse 41. They leave it out, but I, th- I think you'll see why. Verse, two, four, verse 42 begins with what words? 42, yeah. And the Lord said, so we got to know what in the world's going on, right? 41, then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? So Jesus has just given a parable, right? Peter wants to know exactly who the parable is to, right? Is it to me? Is it to us? Is it to everyone? Then in verse 41, or verse, verse 42, and the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Right? Now, just just from a, a simple test, where would you place this scripture? Law. Okay, why? All right, this is about doing something. Jesus coming back or the, or the steward coming back and looking what the servant is doing. Yes? Now, they just jump right in the middle of it. I don't know. Uh, that's, the, that's the way they're operating because what they really want us to see is just understand these concepts between law and gospel. So everyone would read this and say it is law. Right? Because we're talking about us doing something. Not only just doing something, does it talk about us being faithful? All right, so being faithful, doing something. So the doing is equating to being faithful, right? What does it mean to be faithful? To be fine doing. To be fine doing means to be found what? Faithful. All right, so clearly this is a law-based concept. All right, let's see what they have to say here. What the Lord terms a great achievement is not the mere recital of the word of God, or, to stick to the simile, the appointing of some food to every member of the household, but this, that everyone is given his due portion at the proper time, that each one is treated as his spiritual condition requires. This this must be done at the proper time. It is a poor steward that gives the servant something now and then allows a long time to pass before he gives them something again and is unconcerned about the quantity of food that he must provide and about the proper time to serve it. The lesson conveyed by the simile is this. A preacher must be well-versed in the art of ministering to each and season exactly what he needs, either the law or the gospel. I don't know why, They're going with that concept here. I will say this. I guess they're trying to draw a simile from this. I will say this. Let's let's, let's take it apart this way. Uh, Because they're they're doing some weird things with that. All right. That's that's always the danger. That's always the danger. So let's explain something. It's always the danger whenever you have a theological concept... And then you find a text of scripture and you try to impose that on the scripture. You always got to be careful with that, right? You want to use it as a simile. You want to use it as an illustration. You always got to be careful because where should our simile or illustrations derive from? From the text, we should never place it on the text, all right? So that always, that's always concerning when they do that. But let's look at it and see what we can figure out here, all right? Let's go back to verse 35, all right? Because if they're going to present us a text, what are we going to do with it? We're going to figure out the text, all right, and see what we can do with it. And if we, because we've already done that once in the book, we've discarded what they've done. But let's see what we can do, 
All right? If we go back to verse 22, who is Jesus talking to? In Luke 12. All right? He's talking to his disciples. All right? And uh, we'll just start there. All right? I know the further we back up, the longer it's going to take, but that's okay. All right? He says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Consider ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? All right, now this raises 9,000 questions. I'm not going to get into all of it right now. I just did a sermon review on something related to this. All right, so what do we have here in verse 22 through 24? Do we have law or gospel? What do we have here? We have law. We definitely have some law. What's the law part? Don't what? Be anxious. Right? Don't be anxious. Take no thought. Don't don't worry. And what are you not to worry about? Okay, your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall put on. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to put on. Now, I think all of us would realize that if you look at people's lives, there's a lot of concern about all three of those things. Yes? Correct? So immediately you find yourself probably feeling what? Somewhat guilty or condemned by this because none of us pull this off correctly. Yes? So that's law. Agreed? Then he tells us that life is more than meat. The body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap which neither have storehouses nor a barn, and God feedeth them, how much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, which taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be, if ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? All of this is a lot, is a lot of law because it's telling you don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Everybody understand that? So far, so good. All right. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not. They spin not. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is, uh, is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Even though there's almost like a gospel promise that God's going to take care of you, it's still, almost still used in what way? Law, because it challenges how much faith you have. Why do you question? Why do you doubt? Why do you worry? Why are you filled with so much anxiety? And and if you've ever listened to sermons on this, it's very law-driven, yes? So basically, it tells you, stop worrying, stop being uh, feeling anxiety. Then they may give you three steps to stop, right? Trust God, do, do this, and you have a, lo- a lot of lists and a lot of rules, and then everybody sits in church and says, Amen, and everybody's committed, well, sometimes, some of the people are committed to walking out and saying, I'm not going to worry, I'm not going to have any anxiety this week, and usually before they get home from church, they've already demonstrated some kind of worry or anxiety about something. So then, everyone just feels bad, or everyone convinces themselves that they learned some lesson, and that kind of is the end of that. So this is very law-based. So far, so good. All right. What does it say in verse 29? Don't seek what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that ye have need of these things. I mean, there's so many problems. That, oh, man. This text raises, it's, uh, I have so many problems with this text that it's not even funny. All right. Verse uh, 31, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. And everybody understands where I, why I have problems with this passage, right? Okay. Well, for those who've been here, why do I have problems with this passage? Yeah. Every four seconds, someone in this planet starves to death. Every four seconds. Right? That's a lot of starvation, a lot of dying, right? And a lot of Christians have starved, starved to death and died in church history, yes? 
right? Because persecution, famine, drought, whatever the case may be, wherever they live. So I have some serious issues here, right? And any and in raising those questions, people should not. I know Christians get self, def, you know, get defensive and get worried and they get bothered. But we have to be willing to deal with that reality. This text raises some serious, serious questions, and I and I struggle with it. I, I've talked about it before. Um, very famous, 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 famous photo. Um, it's a, in a third world nation. It's a little boy. He's uh, curled up on the ground, you know, kind of like cr- uh, crouched down. He's laying there and you can just see that he's starving to death. Like he's about to die. I mean, he, he, you can see his ribs. I mean, it's a horrific picture. And guess what is standing right behind him? A buzzard waiting for him to die. And of course, skeptics take the picture and say, well, yep, God's going to feed the birds of the air. Okay, with a little kid, right? And that, that's how they use it. And you can see why they would use it that way, right? I got no problem with them using it that way because it raises the question. So this text creates serious, serious problems. But what's really sad is it's used, in, and sometimes it's used this way. Well, the reason you're starving or the reason you don't have this or the reason you don't have this or the reason you don't have this is because you worry or you don't have faith. Or you're not seeking first the kingdom of God. Because if you would seek first the kingdom of God, guess what? You would have all of these things and you would be completely taken care of. You would have it all and you would have to ever worry about anything. Now, if you take it to its logical conclusion, well, you shouldn't have to go to work either, right? Because it says they don't seek after these things, they don't do these things. So is the food just going to arrive at your house and your rent and your mortgage is just going to show up at your house? And I'll say, no, 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 you've got to go out and do it. Well, wait a minute, the text seems to imply God's going to provide it for you. Well, they say, well, it'll provide it for you through work. So if you... And then it just becomes a big circle and everyone tries to deal with it. There's lots of issues here. Right? And I've talked about it and, and I've given all the possible explanations and how to interpret it in church history because everyone's tried to figure it out. Lots of questions. But I do know this. This whole text is usually preached as law. Because as soon as I tell you, seek first the kingdom of God, what should you almost immediately say? Okay. Well, yeah, well, first of all, has anyone ever sought first the kingdom of God? Everyone should say, well, one person has. Who? Okay, go through all of these things. Did Christ trust his heavenly Father for all of his provision? Yes. Did Christ seek first the kingdom of God? Yes. So in one way, do I fall short of this? And Christ, do I fall short of any of it? No. Because Christ did not worry, Christ did not have anxiety, Christ trusted the Father, and in Him I have. In practice, do we fall short of it? Yes. So this is law. And it creates many, and the law creates many problems. Because again, the theory sounds good, yes? This is a great example of theory. You can take these verses and it sounds good, but when you start living Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you have a hard time transitioning those words to your everyday life. Because your everyday life is filled with what? Okay. Not only sin, but what, what's required to live every day? Food, water, housing, money, clothing, all of those things. I mean, this is like everyday stuff, yes? And if you don't have those things, do you just go, well, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> no, there's going to be concern. So then you feel guilty because you're not supposed to have worry. How do you process that? That's the difficulty, yes? Now, we, should we be filled with worry and anxiety? I'm not saying we should. I'm saying the reality is this is going to condemn anyone who even comes close. Again, seek first the kingdom of God. You should immediately do what? I, I don't do that. I don't do that. What does verse uh, 32 say? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, that's so interesting. Like, if you're, if you're reading this, what, what question would you ask with ver- verse 32? Maybe I'm the only one. What question comes to your mind when you read verse 32? Anybody. Maybe I'm the only one who reads this way. Because, you know, I don't read the Bible like most people. 
Everybody just reads it and goes, Jesus, because they're in church or something. I read it and have millions of questions. What questions should come to your mind in verse 32? Anybody, everyone. Okay, all right. I, I don't have too many problems with the little flock. What do, you think, what do you think my problem is? Why would I have an issue with that? Okay, all right. Well, my question is, wait a minute. You're talking about food, shelter, clothing. I don't care about the kingdom. What about the food, the shelter, and the clothing, right? Correct? I mean, look, if you're sitting there telling me, hey, look, you don't need to worry about anything. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you shelter. I'm going to give you clothing. You don't need to worry about it. And then all he says, fear, fear not, little flock. What is he going to say in the verse? Okay, well, wait, no, 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 no. I'm still trying to figure out the food, the shelter, and the clothing. What has the kingdom got to do with this? Does that mean the food, shelter, and clothing will ultimately be provided in the kingdom? I got lots of questions, yes? That would be, am I the only one who thinks that way? I'd be like, wait, Jesus, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. We're still talking about food, shelter, and clothing, right? How did we get to the kingdom? Are you saying the kingdom is coming tomorrow? Then I don't have to worry about food, shelter, and clothing? Are you saying I don't have to worry about food, shelter, and clothing in the kingdom? Oh, I know. The next verse has caused major problems in church history. Major problems. Not, not only in church history, major problems in the 1970s. Right? Major problems in the 1970s. Right here in Texas. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it. I, I was listening to it last night. All right. Um, so go, look for what he says. Verse 33. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, which no thief approacheth, neither more moth corrupt. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This seems to imply, if you put it all together, what does Jesus seem to be saying? Sell everything you have, and why can't you sell everything you have? Well, go to the pre, uh, up earlier, what we just read. He's going to provide everything for you. He's going to provide everything for you. So guess what? You don't need any of this. Right? In the, in 19, I think it was 1981, in Houston, a dog discovered these two bodies of, of, a, of a man and a woman. All right? The two individuals had gone missing, and at some point they, the, they, they thought the family thought, because remember, in, in, in that, that period of time, you couldn't keep up with your family unless you were calling long distance or writing a letter. But supposedly, this, the, 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 the man in the relationship joined a cult. Now, this cult, I think they called themselves Christ Family, right? It started in the 70s, and basically, they sold all of their possessions, right? They walked around the country in robes, and they ate their food out of garbage cans. Because God was going to provide everything they need. Now, so there, there's, there's a whole like, podcast now about the, the, the murder because they found the bodies, right? And then when they went back to the family, the family was like, well, they supposedly joined some cult like, the, in the early 80s, and we never heard from them again because the cult said that they wanted to break off all contact. They didn't know that, that their son had died. And so then they were like, well, where's the baby? And they're like, wait, there's a baby? And like, then the baby said so they found the baby just, she's now a grown woman, uh, has five kids. I guess what happened is the cult, after the baby died, the cult took the baby and then just took it to some church in Arizona and gave it to the pastor and the pastor raised the, the, the little girl. Her name is Molly, I think. And now she's grown. And now she just discovered that her parents were actually killed. But nobody knows who, if the cult killed the kid or whatever. It's a whole crazy, crazy, crazy story. But there was a cult walking around in Texas claiming that they were following this. They had sold all of their goods. They were going to let God provide all of their Needs without working, and all they needed to do was go open up a garbage can and eat. 
Now, you would say, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. But what were they trying to do? Live out the scripture. <laughs> that's it. And trust me, what, what, what was said in early, the early church? The early church, everyone had done what? They, they used to say there were more Christians in the monastery than there was in the cities because the Christians had sold all of their possessions and went and lived in a monastery because that's what the Bible says to do. So when, isn't it weird how some scriptures we will take very seriously, right? Like, just think about this. When we read a scripture that says, get, do not get drunk, how do we take that scripture? Literally, right? Don't get drunk. Agreed? Sell all your possessions. What do we do with that? He didn't really mean that. So what do we say? You just have to be willing to sell all your possessions, but you don't have to do it. Well, I, so I could take any scripture like that, right? Hey, the Bible tells me not to do that. Look, 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 guys. I know you saw me last night and I was completely drunk, but just what? I was willing. I was willing not to get drunk. <laughs> I, just, I just decided not. I, would any of y'all take that seriously? Why is it that there's some scriptures we take very seriously and there's others we don't? You know what we have a tendency to do? When it's a law that we either don't, we can't keep or don't want to keep, we have a, a tendency to do what with it? Minimize it or lower the standard. Right? When Jesus says, resist not evil, turn the other cheek, right? love your enemy, we say that's only true until when? until my life is in danger or someone I love, then what can I do to my enemy? I can kill them. And if anyone calls that into question, we get mad at the one who calls them into question. Because what do we do with that scripture? We lower the standard. Why do we lower the standard? Because we're like, no way. Jesus can't mean that. So when he says, sell all of your possessions, what do we do with that? Come on, what, what, what do you, you've been a Christian for long enough. What do you typically have done with the passages where Jesus seems to indicate we're to sell all of our possessions? We just say have to be willing to. Isn't it easy to be willing to do something you never have to do? I want all the kids, I want you all to use that this week, okay? If, if, the, if your parents tell you to do anything, just say, I'm willing to do it. I just don't, I just don't have to do it. Okay, no, don't. You'll probably get in trouble. Okay, all right. They're going to say, the pastor said, the pastor. Okay, yeah, yeah, don't, don't. Because then I'll be getting phone calls. You, my kids now won't do anything, but they say they're willing to. Okay, it doesn't work, does it? Tell your teacher that. Hey, I'm willing to do my homework, but I'm not. Do I get an A for my willing to? Okay, yeah, I, I, it should work that way. Okay, I, I got to call all of your kids and say, hey, I got a new policy for you. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it. we would never accept that for our kids. But we think God is supposed to accept. Well, I'm willing to do it. Well, if you're willing, then why don't you do it? So do you see the problem this creates? Now, if we put in law and gospel... What do we find here? How, does, how, how would law and gospel clean any of this up? What do you think? How would law and gospel clean any of this up? How does law and gospel fix any of these problems? I mean, I, I mean, that's the only way to get around some of this, right? Either you have to do what it says... Or you acknowledge that you never, never will. Or you have to say it's just for the disciples. Right? Yeah, you have to start trying to do... You've got to come up with all kinds of solutions. I mean, these are texts that leave you with major problems. Remember when the, uh, the rich young ruler, what did Jesus tell him to do? Sell everything. And when the guy went away, did Jesus say, No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Come on back. Come on. It's a joke. Come on. You just have to be, you just got to be willing to do it. Did Jesus do that? That's the most bizarre story in the world, right? Because you're like, well, Jesus, what did you just do? 
What would you do? What would you, what would you do if someone walked into the church and I'm like, oh, you want to be a Christian? Go sell everything and come back and, and, and then we'll talk. And then they just walked out. You would be like, what are you doing? Give him the gospel. It's sometimes, but that, Jesus gives these laws which are supposed to condemn us. I would say that this entire section, by the time I'm done with this entire section, I'm questioning my entire salvation. Are you not? Do you work? I'll just go through this. Do any of you ever worry or have anxiety about the basic things of life? If you're a teenager, maybe you don't. But if you're a parent, and you have to pay the bills and work and worry about the mortgage and all of that. You have concerns. Yes. Right. When, when prices keep going up or whatever the case may be, you have issues. All right. Does anyone here ever have a problem with seeking first the kingdom of God? Yes. And does anybody here do really well with selling all of your possessions? Right, we 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 don't even we don't even come close to that, do we? Because we all have our possessions, and we all fall short of it. All right, what does he do in verse thirty-five? Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves liken to men that uh, wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh back, knocketh they may open to him immediately. Now, what do we have here? Law of gospel. Law, because this is the idea that we need to be what? Ready, waiting, watching. Okay? Blessed are the servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself, make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. Now, the idea, now, there's a little bit of gospel idea that he's going to serve them, but it seems that the reason he's going to serve them is because they were doing what? Watching and ready. All right? And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good men of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when you think not. Once again, though, it's going to be focused on what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to be doing? If you put it all together, you're not to be worrying. You're not to have any anxiety. You're to be seeking the first, the kingdom of God. You're to sell everything you have and you're to be watching for Christ coming back. That's a lot of rules. That's a lot of rules. And I could preach that and by the end of the sermon, you'd be like... I don't know what I'm going to do. So then what, what is Peter? Now, now, now look at Peter's question in verse 41. <laughs> Who are you talking to? That's somewhat humorous when you look at it in context, right? What, what, what makes it funny? Peter's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you, are, is this what we have to do? Are you talking to us? Are you talking to someone else, right? Are you talking to me? Wait, we all have a tendency to do that. We get a, li- a list of rules, right? Wait, I, I got to do this entire thing by myself? That someone, this has got to be for someone else. Oh, you want me? No, okay, yeah, he, he's got some questions here. So then Jesus said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Who is the faithful and wise steward? Well, according to the text, who would be the faithful and wise steward? Who would be the faithful and wise steward according to the text? The one who's been watching and waiting. The one who's doing these things. Now, truthfully, the only faithful and wise steward has ever been is Christ. But it's saying this is what is to be a faithful and wise steward. What is Jesus going to say in regards to the faithful and wise steward? Whom the Lord shall make rule over the household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find... So doing, all right, so the faithful and wise steward is uh, whom the Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, 
when he cometh, shall find so doing of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Now, the way the book wants to use it is that, oh, this is just an illustration. And really, who gets to be made the ruler over all? The one who can properly distinguish between law and gospel. That's how they're trying to use it in the book. That has nothing to do with what's going on there. Does everybody understand that? has nothing to do at all with that. It's not an illustration. It's not a, that's just a horrible use of the text. But the text does give us a great a chance to do what? Struggle with questions about law and gospel. Law and gospel. So let's do this really quick. All right? Fine. Let's see. And y- y'all can work together, talk. I don't care. Use Siri. Talk to a friend. I don't care what you do. Because um, I'm just curious. Find... Yeah, we got time. Find how many times in Scripture where Jesus seems to indicate we should sell all of our possessions. Go. You can use whatever tools you have available to you. All right, let's make a list of the times where Jesus seems to indicate selling all of our possessions. All right, you can look up the word sell. You can look up the word possessions. You can look up give. And let's try to take them in order. I'm just curious. You can look up the word treasure. You look up the word treasure, I think that would lead us to something. All right. Y'all can talk. It's okay. Do what? See, whatever you can find, look, use any tool you have. You got ten verses. On sell, okay. Okay, so now we're down to nine, okay. And we just need the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. And John, obviously, I'm sorry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm throwing out John for some weird reason, okay. Okay, seven. All right, what's the first one in Matthew. Everybody look at Matthew 13, 44 and tell me what you find. Okay. Now, this one is, he's kind of using a parable and he's trying to show you the value of basically of the kingdom of God or of the gospel. And it's the idea that you would sell everything you have to obtain it. Some would even argue in church history that that's what you had to do, okay? But it's not necessarily, I think that would be a wrong application or even interpretation, but it's trying to show you the value of the gospel, all right? Next. Okay, Matthew 19, 21. Don't read it yet. Matthew, everyone turn there. Matthew 19, 21. Matthew 19, 21. Matthew 19, 21. All right, go ahead. All right, go to Matthew 19, 20. Everyone look at this passage. Matthew 19, 21. Yeah, this is the rich young ruler. We knew it was going to show up. And, and if you have cross-references in your Bible, you can look up cross-references to Matthew 19, 21. It may lead you to others. All right, let's go to this text. Matthew 19, 16. Everybody there? Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What's another way of saying this? What can I do to be saved? And that's a, that's a, that's a good question, right? Now, Jesus is Jesus, so he's got to give us the good answer. So what's the, what would be the answer we would give anyone? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, invite Jesus into your heart, say the sinner's prayer, whatever language, depending on the Christian tradition we come from, right? Okay? Believe on Jesus. 
But Jesus himself doesn't say believe on Jesus. Okay? What does he say? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life. All right. In other words, if you want to be saved, what are the next, what, three words? Keep the commandments. Whoa, wait, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? He just told the person the way to be saved is to keep the commandments. That sounds insane, doesn't it? Now, what did Jesus just do? Someone just said it. He gives them the law. In fact, he literally gives them the law. Not figuratively, not theoretically. Keep the commandments. Here you go. And then the rich young ruler immediately says, which ones? Which is hilarious, right? Okay. Which, and why does he say which ones? Because if what is it, his mind has to be thinking, oh boy, there's, there's a lot. Or he's thinking some of those, even if, even if he's just restricting it to the 10, he's probably thinking some of those 10 can be difficult, right? So which ones? And then what does Jesus say? Yeah, he, so he goes with these. What, in a sense, remember the Ten Commandments are broken into two parts? What are the two parts of the Ten Commandments? Come, all right, yes. The first part deals with our relationship as, as far as God, and the second one deals with our relationship with our neighbor, right? Which means that the entire law is summed up in two basic concepts. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And immediately we fall short in both, Right? We should. Everyone should acknowledge this. So what, which ones does Jesus give him? The ones dealing with people. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. And do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And just please note that when Jesus, that when we give these commands, or when these commands are given, it's more than just the outward, right? I can murder someone How? In my heart. I can commit adultery, how? In my mind, right? Stealing. I can, I can steal, in a sense, by wanting what someone else wants, even if it means them losing it. I can bear false witness in and, and, and so many different ways, right? Honor, father and mother, is not just an external honor, it's an internal. So immediately when I look at that, what should we all say? I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. But the rich young ruler Oh, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth and up, what like I yet? Now, this is what's funny, is Jesus gives him the law and he says, I've kept it. This is exactly what happens in the evangelical world when people take the lordship idea and they see MacArthur's test, they will say, I've done it. And whenever I hear people say that they've kept whatever test, it, it, I, I just want to, I just want to get in the car and drive away from the person. Cause you're out of your mind. You're delusional. Because if you think you've kept any, any scriptures personally, perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually, you are mentally, uh, uh, something is wrong up here. Because you're deceived. Because nobody has kept any of those. We've all fallen short of all of those in some way, shape, or form. But the rich young rulers were like, what? I did it. I got it. So I get what? Eternal life. So then what does Jesus decide to do? Oh, oh, okay, good. I, lo- I like the way you drew the, that you brought the two together, right? Okay, because Jesus gives them the part about loving your neighbor. In fact, he ends it with, what does Jesus end that statement with? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I look at anybody in here and say, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, if you tell me that you do that, you are a liar. And how do I know that? Well, if you really do, 
If you really love your neighbor as yourself, sell everything you have and give it to them. Right? Or better dressed. Look, if I, if, I, if I ever come to you and say, you know what, people, I love my neighbor as myself, all you have to look at me is say, okay, we're going to walk to 1802 Moonlight Drive. We're going to walk to the front door. We're going to take an immediate left. We're going to take an immediate right. We're going to walk into your music room, right? There's my Yamaha amp, right? I've got my very nice pair of headphones. I got my iPad Pro. That's only for all the music streaming services. It's not to be used for anything else, right? Okay? I have CD player. I have a tuner. I have a turntable. I've got CDs. I've got albums, okay? Every Thursday night when all the new music drops, headphones on, I'm going to listen to all of it. All you have to say to me is do what? Give that to someone else, and I'll be like, you're out of your ever-living mind. I, and I will give it to someone else if I can get better. Okay? If, if what I have can be replaced with the equipment that I actually want, then okay. Because anyone knows how much I absolutely love music. Immediately, I would be confronted with the fact that I love whom the most. Because I don't even let anyone touch my stereo equipment. No one, no one can touch under any circumstance. That's the, that's the death penalty, right? I mean, it's over. Right? There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy, right? Because that's, yes. So it would be very easy for you. In fact, you can get me for two things right there, right? Not loving people. And, and pr- a very high probability that, and I know this, that sometimes I love music maybe more than I probably love God. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. Now you can sit there, oh, well, I, I can find your thing. I'm just willing to confess my thing. So Jesus, and I love the way you saw, you saw that. Hey, if you, okay, you said that you love your neighbor. Okay, then it's simple. And what does he tell him to do? Look at the next verse. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what does the young man do? That, that is, the, that is the, bizarre, the most bizarre verse in the entire Bible, right? Because he walks away. And, you, and what are you waiting for? What I'm reading it. What are you waiting for? Okay, I, again, I don't know how you guys read things, but I, because when I read, I immediately start talking to the text. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. He didn't mean that. He did, he, Jesus didn't mean, like, no, go back, go back. He didn't mean it. He's messing with you. It's psych. It's a joke. All you're going to do is believe in Jesus. But does Jesus say, no, 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 come on, come on. I'm playing with, I'm pulling your leg. He doesn't. Because what is he waiting for? Jesus wants the rich young ruler to say what? I can't do this. You're asking me the impossible. Because it's impossible for us to ever do that. It is impossible. I will say it's humanly impossible for you to ever love others the way you love yourself. It's humanly impossible. And why is it humanly impossible? Say it. Everything inside of us, but what's what's the key element inside all of us? A sinful nature. Right? Is it, I mean, look, it's hard enough. Just think about this. If you've been a parent for five seconds, you know this, right? Okay? You can, you can get the kids together and, and, and try to reason with them logically, thoughtfully, right? That's, that was always my approach, right? We can, I, we can just be able to reason this out. Logic and reason, we should fix all of our problems, right? So just logically, it would be like, look, here's the deal. All right? Every day, you just wake up. Okay, it's Monday. You want to have a good Monday? I want to have a good Monday. Here's the thing. You just do these simple rules. 
and then it'll be, it'll be better for you. You won't get in any trouble. I won't be upset. You won't be upset. We'll have a good day, right? Makes, makes perfect sense, right? It's so simple. Here's the rules. Your life will be good. My life will be good. You'll be happy. I'll be happy. It'll be peace, harmony, rainbows, and skittles. Everybody will be, everyone, life will be great. And then five seconds later, you turn, and then five seconds later, what's happening? I reasoned with you. It makes perfect sense, right? But immediately what happens? It goes the wrong way. Why? Because reason and logic doesn't do what? Fix what's inside of us. So just because we hear, I mean, just because like we should just love one another sounds great, but the reality is we love whom? Ourselves. And does that, show, does that not show up in your life? Does that show up in your family? Shows up everywhere. This, this, this right there just demonstrates this. So how would we typically preach, uh, understand that? What we say is, no, 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 no. He just needed be, to be willing He just needed to be willing to sell all of his possessions. Do you think if if he would have just turned around and said, hey, Jesus, I'm willing to do it, but I'm not going to do it. They would say, well, no, no. If he was really willing to do it, then he would do it. Like, how do we we convince ourselves that all he had to do was be willing to do it? Because if he was willing to do it, then he would do it. So, so then some people try to say, we have to be willing to do it. Look, you, don't tell me you're willing to do it. Do it. I can tell you that I'm willing to get rid of my stereo equipment, but it would be the biggest lie in the history of mankind. I'd rather cut off an arm. Okay, you're, I know you're like, wow, that's crazy. But no, it's the way it is. Yes? So, so, in reality, how do we have to view this? Jesus was what? Dead serious. Why? Because the law demands not a willing to do, is willing to keep the law sufficient. No. You've got to carry it out perfectly, exactly, entirely, perpetually. All, right? All the things that we have talked about. All right, what's the next one? Well, we're gonna, I think we're out of time. Oh, man, we're out of time. <sighs> See, I, I wish the book would have handled this this way because this is far better than what they did. They wanted to use this as some cheap illustration, right? That If you want to sit at the head of the table, basically, know how to, to distinguish law and gospel, and that's all they're using the little simile parable for. If you want to be the good and faithful steward, you have to know how to distinguish between law and gospel. That's not what that story is about. A story is showing us that all these things would leave us where? Condemned. Condemned. So here's what we can say. In one way, does Jesus require that we sell everything that we have? Yes. Everybody hear it? Jesus requires you to sell everything you have and give to the poor. And what should your uh, response be to that? I don't, I can't, I will not. He said, well, then how can you be saved? Because who did give everything? Jesus. What did he give? Well, he laid aside his glory to take on human flesh. I mean, that's, that's a pretty radical thing. You're God sitting on the right hand of the Father, creator of everything, and the next thing you know, you're a baby that someone has to change your diaper. That's beyond my comprehension. Right? But you're yet, you're still God. People lie about you, rip out your beard, spit upon you, put a crown of thorns on you, beat you, whip you, and put nails through your wrist and your feet, and you could stop it at any time. And he's doing that for whom? Us, loving his neighbor. He did give up everything. In a sense, he did sell everything for us. He did give it to the poor. Are we the poor? He did that for us. 
So it, when, when Jesus says, sell everything, all I can say is, I can't, I won't, but you did for me. That's what, we don't minimize it. So Jesus would tell you to sell everything you have because that's the only way to show that you truly, I mean, look, you've, you've probably even been guilty of this. Someone asks you, hey, can I borrow a couple of dollars? And you'll be like, I don't have it. When you know you have the money in your wallet and you're going to use it for yourself for lunch. It's, it's hard just to go, man, I'm starving for lunch. Okay, here you go. You can have it. That's hard enough just to give up lunch for someone, is it not? True? Because, I, I mean, I, I know this just from my own, when I was a teenager, I've told, told the story before, my, my whole, the whole time as a teenager, anytime I was given money for my school lunches, I never used my money for school lunches. I would go hungry, save my money, so that on Friday, I could go buy music. Right, because if it was if I had to choose between food and music, I was going to choose music. I still would today if I have to make a choice: food or music. I'm I'm getting music. I who cares about food? I can I can live without that. I can't live without music. Right? That's the way it works. Okay. So I but guess what? If so, if I had the money in my pocket and someone needed to borrow money for lunch, guess what? I told them, I don't have it because it was my music money, and I don't really care if you drop dead from starvation. You say, well, that sounds horrible. I know. Because I'm a sinner. And guess what? I don't know what your issue is, but I bet you you say similar things and you just say it maybe in a nicer way. We're all there, right? We love ourselves. We don't love God. And we are not about to sell all of our possessions for anyone. True? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you are the faithful and good steward, and you sold all of your possessions to save us. And we ask your forgiveness for our inability to love others the way we should. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...